Welcome back to Propel, the Allen and Overy podcast addressing all things related to self-driving vehicles. I'm Paul Keller, your host, an intellectual property lawyer based in A&O's New York office. It has been repeatedly said, and frankly repeatedly said even by me, that the vehicle industry is going through a time of rapid transition, a revolution of sorts as it moves from traditional cars to autonomous ones, from internal combustions to batteries. Although these issues represent technological change, what does it mean for the underlying business, for how these companies actually make their money? Is it business as usual? Or do these tech changes also represent a shift in the underlying business models, or maybe something in the middle? Our guest today will address these issues and much more. Joshua Gans is a professor of strategic management and holder of the Jeffrey S. Gold Chair in Technical Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Robin School of Management at the University of Toronto. He is also the chief economist of its Creative Destructive Lab. He has written a variety of books on innovation and digital economics, including Prediction Machines, The Simple Economics of Artificial Intelligence, in 2018. His latest book, Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence, will be out later in November. Joshua, thank you so much for joining the program. Great to be here. Well, I'd like to take our time together to discuss the business side of the car industry and explore its past business models, present, and perhaps even its future. But to set the stage a bit on the transformation that is taking place, could you explain for us uh, how the car industry traditionally made their money, including how the dealerships fit in, and then we'll talk about the changes that are taking place? Yeah, so I think the way in which you'd characterize how people bought cars previously and still do, of course, is there was a single selling opportunity where people would purchase uh, the motor vehicle, um, sometimes with financing, and then the dealership or anybody else wouldn't see them except for repairs of that vehicle, of which the consumer was hoping not to pay for any of it, uh, whether it be through warranties or insurance. Uh, so it was very much focused on that initial sale. Uh, it's much the same way as you would focus on the sale of anything that was sort of durable, like buying yourself a, a business suit or, or buying yourself a dress for a wedding or something like that. It's that single point of sale. Obviously, with respect to cars, there was a potential to, uh, for the consumers to resell their cars. So we had, of course and still do a healthy used car market, which uh, feeds back into that initial sale as well, you know, worrying about cars holding their value and so forth. So that was basically how that was done. And then you contrast that with how we do uh, uh, buy things like software and computer software these days, uh, that where, where it's not just one single acquisition point for the consumer and one time you, you get to monetize that relationship but it's an ongoing one uh, where they might be subscribing to your service uh, and you, you pay over time. And that's a very different sort of business model. Let me give you some foreshadow there to be sure, but uh, can you put a little bit more color on how the car manufacturers make their money? You've got these dealers kind of sitting in the middle. The customer goes to the dealer to get the car, but the OEM is sitting somewhere behind that. How... As we're negotiating with the dealership and maybe we're considering financing and maybe we're considering the, the heated seat option or not, what's going on with the OEM side? How are they making their money based on those sales by the dealership? 
So in effect, what uh, OEMs are doing are practicing, you know, forms of price discrimination. There's a base level basic car that they can sell you. Then they think about how they can add features to that car uh, that make them more particularly attractive right at the point of sale. You know, one classic one being a sunroof or, uh, uh, as you said just before, uh, heated seats. Uh, it used to be the car navigational system. Uh, used to be a, a potential add-on. There may be a DVD system used to be put there for, you know, if you're buying a family van of some kind or an SUV. Uh, so there were all these sorts of features. And in fact, some of them would come, of course, from the OEM themselves. Others might also be sold by the dealer. Uh, the dealer may offer certain sorts of coatings and protections and other things that they might try to sell you. And each of those ones had the quality that the cost of actually putting them in the car was much less than the incremental cost or price increase that you would pay for a car with those features or with a bundle of other features as part of a luxury package. So in effect, uh, both the OEM and the car dealership were making relatively more of their money from that sort of upsale than necessarily they were making from the entire thing that we call a car itself. All right. So now as we see these transitions taking place in these vehicles and the push to have that more and more self-driving, more and more software, more and more um, computer-based, has that monetization model changed? Or, and to be fair, is there just one model or many? I know mobility as a service is, is a tag phrase that's used out there, but how has all this disruption affected that kind of OEM, uh, dealership, customer relationship? Well, I think in several different sorts of ways. Uh, for instance, you know, while previously you may not have bad an eyelid of paying $1,000 more for a car that had a navigational system, now, of course, you know, well, I, I like the one on my phone uh, and I just need to pay a few bucks for a, a holder for my phone and I've got the same or even better, a system than the manufacturer was offering. So all of a sudden, there's some of those systems are now being, uh, you know, self-provided by the consumer. So there's competition and so less ability to upsell. There is also the fact that, you know, cars increasingly have software components to them. They always have had that. They've had it within and something that you as the driver did not see. But now these things are being surfaced up to be more important. Um, one critical set of these is, of course, things to do with car safety. So you have software that's improving over time the ability of the car to send signals to the driver that they might be in a collision or something bad might happen. Currently, you know, prior to recent times, that software was bundled into the make and year model of the car that you were purchasing. Uh, and, and maybe there'd be some bug fixes if you took it in for a service, but there'll be no new features being rolled out. Well, now we sort of have a, an interesting world at which, uh, you know, and it's been led by Tesla, where the new features can appear on your car well after the time you've bought it. All of a sudden, Tesla works out how to have different applications run on your console or it uh, works out how to have, you know, things like self-driving capabilities using the hardware that already exists in your car. And so those sorts of things are coming later. And that affords Tesla, for instance, with the opportunity to say, well, instead of you buying a car that may have these features come in and you've got to guess at it, we'll sell you the car. And then 
when the features come in, we'll sell you them then. So uh, you'll get some benefit from that. And then finally, there's things that are built into the car uh, that give recurring sources of revenue. Sirius XM radio, the satellite radio, people realize that early on and have uh, had deals with OEMs to get the equipment for satellite radio into the cars. Uh, but it relied on the consumer then paying each month for that satellite radio offering. For Sirius XM, that is a form of recurring revenue. Well, now the car makers themselves are starting to say, well, wonder what opportunities there are for that. For Tesla, for instance, because it has a ongoing connection to the internet, they charge consumers for that connection. Uh, they probably charge consumers as much as they pay for, uh, if not more, for the data going through that than they would on their phones. But because it's part of the car, they don't see that cost in the same way. So that's how this model is changing from all the payments being upfront to the stream of payments and recurring revenue going forward, which changes the incentives of the car manufacturers in terms of how they think about what the base is for improving and software improving in products. It's not just to sell new cars, it's to sell to the entire installed base of uh, owners. Well, that's very interesting because as we see that roll out, you know, we've seen some comparatives uh, in earlier marketplaces or, or other marketplaces, such as the mobile device uh, industry, where that kind of concept of getting the device is just the starting point. It's really the add-ons, the upgrades, the downloads, the connections, all of that that drives a lot. Um, but in some instances, those mobile devices become free. Yeah. And then, and then the cost is, is really all the other software that takes place. Are we going that way with vehicles that the hardware will just be given to you and the car manufacturers will make all their money from all the software add-ons? You know, there is an executive in every one of these car companies who's had the idea of whether they can just give the cars away and make money off something that's going on afterwards. Um, uh, for instance, you know, some of these services, but also, you know, selling advertising within the car or something like that. Um, we haven't quite seen that. We haven't quite seen that with, you know, things like mobile devices. We used to used to have our handsets used to be heavily subsidized or seemingly free to us because we were buying them from a carrier and the carrier was going to earn recurring revenue from us. And in order to do that, we had to actually have a handset so they would pretty much give it to us. That sort of went away a bit in recent years. So, so people are now more clearly paying for their handsets. But it's interesting what comes with it, how that works. So, you know, Apple earns a lot of its revenue now from what it calls services. Apple services are things like Apple Music, things like the storage uh, you would have on iCloud to hold your photos and things like that. Apple TV, of course. Uh, there's an Apple Fitness. Um, there's Apple News. And so they managed to sell that, uh, you know, $5 a month, $10 a month, $15 a month, or maybe $30 a month for the whole lot. And so now Apple has recurring revenue from these services that are accruing because people have bought an iPhone and uh, are willing to pay for it. And it's not just Apple. People are buying those devices and buying services from other people like Netflix or Spotify or something like that. So it's quite interesting to see how there's been a a shift away from thinking of the hardware as the single sale uh, to seeing the hardware as an instrument to be able to sell other services as well. And the parallel between the mobile handset business and the car industry is very strong because it's really hardware and software. 
They're trying to get the hardware into more people's hands and make money off the software and be able to sell the software to everybody who happens to own that particular thing. And, you know, maybe if that works in a good way, software is, you know, apart from producing the content itself, every extra sale is straight to the bottom line. Um, that's a pretty good business to be in if you can convince people to do it. There seems to be, though, kind of putting two of your different thoughts together, some real potential tension is that you've got the the car manufacturers now recognizing that, you know, these upcharges on the hardware features are becoming more challenging or non-existent at all. And they want their money from all the software and other related services from there. So that's the OEMs trying to look for those opportunities. But then you mentioned the apples of the world. Yes. Who have their own maps, their own music, their own uh, payment systems. And so, and you can bring that in for just a few dollars into your vehicle. And right. presumably Apple is looking for, you know, the CarPlay uh, approach where it, it will be able to be agnostic as the vehicle and go in whichever car you want to go into. It seems that the car manufacturers in this new model, in this new world, are under a unique pressure as a result. Am I catching that right or am I missing? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, it really is a challenge to the business model. When you're selling the hardware, let's put it that way, people like to kick the tires of the hardware. Um, people like to be explained what the car can do, um, take it for a test drive, etc. They used to do the same with phones as well. You walk into a mobile phone store and look at all the different options for phones. Uh, it's been a long time since I've done that. I don't know about you. You know, you go and you actually want to see the phone and see how it works and feels first. It's not the same issue today. That requires a high-touch sales process right at that initial sale going on there. Um, as soon as you then say, yes, we'll care about people getting into the hardware, but where we see us earning our money is in the software, that also changes the logic by which you invest a lot or incentivize a lot these initial sales and have a dealership uh, structure and things like that. Um, and so much so that we've seen with Tesla, they don't even have dealerships at all in the traditional mode. I think the original thought was that no one needed to even do anything to these things. They should just order them over the internet. I think they're finding that people do like have test drives and things like that. But either way, their process for that is not the same dealer networks that we've been experienced with for several generations. Um, and I think the analogy is very close to what happened to the encyclopedia business. It used to be that selling encyclopedias like Encyclopedia Britannica was a very high-touch activity, the quintessential encyclopedia salesperson who would come to people's door and try and sell uh, families on the education of their children, etc., by demonstrating uh, that you'd pay $1,000 for a lovely leather-bound uh, uh, <laughs> and highly credentialed uh, encyclopedia set. But as soon as those things started going online, even when they were being sold as software, uh, selling software that way was impractical. If you wanted to sell something that had to be connected to the internet, people had to have a, you know, a desktop computer or things like that to demonstrate that. Um, how would you have a salesperson model to go and, and do that in the same way as you could carry a few volumes of a, of a book around uh, for the same experience? So you know that model of selling encyclopedias unwound, even though the encyclopedia is, from a pure good point of view, uh, the same content. It's the same content physically as digitally. But once people have decided they want the thing digitally, the salesperson's job has sort of gone away. 
and everything is on other ways of selling. Could we see the same thing occur with cars? That will be interesting to see. It really depends on how much people have to be convinced that they need to sit and feel the car itself before they buy it. I don't think we're quite yet at the point where people will buy cars unseen based on uh, ads and other things that we do with phones. But why wouldn't that be possible? Fascinating. So let's pivot a little bit. As you know, I'm an intellectual property litigator, um, both in the patents and trade secret side. And so let's talk about the patent stuff for a second and the monetization there and maybe even the damage side there. But as I know you know, and we've been talking a lot, the parallels with the mobile device market is very similar to the, the automotive market is in the mobile device market. Players in the space have developed their patent portfolios and particular ways to develop that market, to capture the market share that they think they're entitled to, and of course, in the process of protecting their innovations. And as a result of, of a lot of that and a lot of different players proceeding with that strategy, there have been massive patent wars in the mobile device marketplace. Um, but the automotive market, which is also littered with innovations, and littered with patents, hasn't seen that kind of patent battle mm. we've seen in the mobile device world. Why is that from your vantage? I mean, it could be for several reasons. I mean, one, you know, we shouldn't forget this tree. Uh, Henry Ford was no fan of patents. Why? Because uh, for many years, his ability to produce automobiles was made difficult uh, by, and uh, I guess I'm talking to a lawyer here, but a set of lawyers who managed to secure a patent on what looked like the automobile. Uh, and there was a, you know, a cost associated with that. Uh, so I think the companies here have tended uh, to be able to develop things and rely on other mechanisms to some degree uh, and patents to really protect their intellectual property. In the mobile phone business, uh, many more manufacturers all around the world, but also with a pool of being able to have their handsets compatible with equipment, uh, compatible with add-ons and other things like that, even all the way down to chargers, that have pushed uh, the mobile phone makers to adopt certain standards. And once those sorts of standards are being adopted uh, that allow for interchangeability of signals or actual physical things, what you get is there's some people who have patents on things that are relevant for those standards. Uh, standard essential patents that they are called. Now, the world would be a huge mess, I think you would agree, if we had to sort out everybody's intellectual property rights for all of the things that may or may not impact on a standard before anybody produced anything. Uh, I don't think you'd see any mobile phones on the market to this day if we had that requirement. So instead, companies realizing this have declared their patents, okay, yes, these patents are standard essential patents, which means uh, we will commit to licensing it to you on fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory terms uh, when the time comes. So go ahead, use our stuff. We can fight the battle later, and if we win, you know, you're using our uh, intellectual property, um, we will guarantee that we're not going to charge you an outrageous amount. So one can imagine that as cars start to use similar systems uh, and uh, they start to <laughs> look like a big mobile phone on wheels, these patent issues in the mobile device industry will spill over to the car industry as well. 
And unless there's a similar sort of mechanism to be able to agree to use now and fight later, we could have a lot of holdup and delay in that sector. Interesting. So you, your expectation then is, frankly, the mobile device wars, although somewhat settled within that industry, somewhat settled within that yeah. industry, are now going to effectively slop over to the mobile device on wheels that are becoming these cars. Sure. If Apple and Google build cars, they will be experienced with these things. But, you know, the Teslas, BMWs, and General Motors of the world are not. <laughs> so how prepared are they for these issues and these intellectual property issues that may be coming their way because it's really going to require some preemptive action and thought about how these things are going to be organized and the terms and how you will assess it because we have enough trouble with a mobile phone trying to value what part of the total cost of a mobile phone is to do with a Wi-Fi standard or to do with a 5G standard or something like that. Who knows what these same demarcations might be for a motor vehicle. Well, I was just about to go there, actually. I mean, the mention of FRAN and those fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms, um, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of facts that go into that assessment uh, for a standard essential patent. And similarly, in, in determining damages in patent cases, where, you know, one particular feature in one particular part of, of one particular car may, you know, may be infringed or be found to infringe a patent, but then trying to assess the damages on that particular piece. And, and in this case, you're telling me that that hardware piece might be sold for free. Right. Uh, you know, what are you seeing as, you know, the appropriate damages considerations for assessing the particular damages of, of those kind of patents? Well, I'll put two hats on. My hat is a uh, potential testifying expert for intellectual property damages cases. <laughs> Plenty of opportunity here. But when I think about really what broadly happens in these cases, not in terms of the formal stuff, but the sort of terms upon which they're settled. Um, what happens is some portion of the wholesale sale price of a motor vehicle is hived off to pay all of the potential claimants to anything that might be uh, infringed in that motor vehicle as part of a standard essential patent. So maybe 5% of some uh, value of the vehicle that is allocated to that purpose and then basically... Uh, you just got to work out what is the set of people who have a claim on it, and that's what's going to happen. You know, I think it will end up being that way in reality, but people are going to fret over some of the issues we're talking about, the changes of business models and all of those sorts of things before they get there. Let's pivot to a maybe an equally challenging topic, um, but still an intellectual property right nonetheless, the trade secrets that are going on you know, with these vehicles now. You've got more and more innovations that are being built in these vehicles. And when I say vehicles, I mean that term very broadly. This is, includes the communication chain, the algorithms that are used for the car to make decisions, the output of that data to continue to refine, repair, track, whatever it may be. But a lot of that information is not actually captured by patents, right. but instead captured by trade secrets, as, as you know. Um, those are not necessarily on a line item of the car, of the sale of the car. Um, they're not necessarily even a line item inside the seller's uh, P&L sheet that says, you know, this is how much we're valuing it for. This is why we're upcharging things. What's your thought about assessing the damages when a potential trade secret in these self-driving vehicles gets misappropriated? We saw a case a few years ago, Uber and Waymo, uh, Waymo being Google's self-driving entity, basically trying to assess damages for alleged theft of intellectual property from one to the other and a theft of a, of, a, of a trade secret in the form of 
data that would help generate a self-driving car. So we've seen some of those things occur before. And, and a full disclosure here, for part of that case, I was the damages expert for Uber. So I've, I've thought about this a little bit. Um, you know, very difficult to evaluate those things. Um, I can tell you, you know, having written a couple of books on artificial intelligence, you know, to any AI algorithm, it's not just simply a function. You know, if somebody walks in and hands over an algorithm fully functioning to be installed in another car, that would be fine, easy. We'll, we can do something to work out the value of that. But if you're talking about components of it, you call it data, you're talking about a method, you're talking about it, a way of using a camera to update self-driving car capabilities, all those sorts of things. Well, that's very, very difficult um, because really what we're talking about uh, is a mix of incremental improvements to these things that are very hard to measure. What's worse, and maybe some of those incremental improvements have to do with safety considerations, uh, of which the, you know, the tension between uh, fighting them and, and wanting to save lives um, would come to the fore as well. So, you know, I can imagine that in the world of artificial intelligence type things, valuing intellectual property, uh, we don't have the frameworks for that. You know, during the counterfactual exercise, but for the, uh, the uh, appropriation of this intellectual property, what would the profits have been of this company? Very, very difficult to do that, which once again leans me towards these sort of solutions that practical-minded judges have come up with, basically saying, yeah, 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 okay, there's a pool here. <laughs> it's going to everybody who has some intellectual property claim will add you to it. Um, if somebody's done something criminal or, or inappropriate egg and that thing, that's a whole other matter, not the same way. We're going to have to see some of these, you know, practical solutions get turned over so that everybody who's developing intellectual property can get their due with full knowledge that what you're really getting as the value of being an innovator in this industry yourself is being first there and being able to say, we did it and getting first to market much more so than your ability to license these things. Joshua, this has been fascinating, particularly interesting because the market is literally moving under our feet. Um, and as, as things progress, uh, these issues will become um, in some ways more clarified, uh, but certainly new issues will arise and, and we'll see that all continue to move for some time. Um, look forward to having you back on the program to talk about that a constant shift and how all this evolves, not just the business models within the industry, but frankly, how the damage models may change uh, as that industry continues to progress. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.